Hello, hello, and welcome to Killer Casting. I am your host, Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director in Los Angeles. I work on TV, film, video games, commercials, and I've got two great wingmen with me tonight talking about tonight's topic. And I have with me from down under. Oh, that's my cue. That's your cue. Yeah. Uh, it's not me. <laughs> Sorry, where's the where's the X marks the spot? Yes, hi there, folks. Yes, Dean from Melbourne. Uh, it's a little overcast today. It's a little cool, which is good because it's been pretty hot. But uh, happy to be here and talking about the Oscars today. That's right. This is our second annual, third annual Oscar Schmasker podcast. So there is nobody else we can have with us. Oh, look mm. at that. Then our wonderful other wingman. That would be me. That would be Paul Sullivan. And I am the uh, the Oscar nut aficionado. I'm the host of the Lockdown MLB podcast. I know everything about baseball. And if there's anything I know as well as baseball, it's the Academy Awards. And this is, along with the World Series, this is my favorite time of the year. Yeah, this is, folks, you, you are listening to the non-idiot savant <laughs> Of the Oscars. Yes. Uh, this guy is going to do this entire show off the top of his head. I have cheat sheets and stuff. He doesn't well, need any of that I, because it's all up in here. It just comes out in a well, I haven't. It's unbelievable. It's a fair. I have not seen all, all the nominees yet. I still have to see. I still have to see All Quiet on the Western Front. And yes. I've been, and I, you know, I'm looking for a good laugh. It looks funny. <laughs> Um, you know, sometimes you just want to say, let's get some Haggadahs, throw the top away, curl up on the couch and pop in the remake of All Quiet on the Western Front, which, by the way, the original won the uh, Academy Award for Best Picture back in 1929. Uh, and it was a it was a hell of a movie back in 1929 and was. Do, do you think anybody said too soon? After that, like 1929, right? So well, I think that it was. It's like, is this too soon? Can we do this? It's it was like, 11 mm, years no. after the end of the First World War, and there was rumblings of a potential new war. And it was a very brave film to make in to 1929 right. to say, hey, remember this was supposed to be the war that end all wars? You know, it was a, you know, it was a very brutal movie for its time and mm. still packs quite a wallop. Um, and it's a, it's interesting because it's told from the German perspective. It's, it's yep. a, you know, this one is actually in German, you know, but, um, but, you know, you get this and Das Boot. These are all good, fun films if you want yeah. to. Just... Well, but yeah. the other ones I haven't seen, I've not seen, uh, I've not seen, uh, um, uh, what was it? Um, uh, why am I, why am I blanking on uh, women, women, women talking, right? That's the name uh, of the film? Yeah, no, I haven't seen that either. And, Guilty uh, as charged. And I, and I, but I will see that. Char and All Quiet on the Western Front, but I've seen the other nominees. Um, and there have been some, there have been, I have to say, there there have been some good films this year. There's, there's, this has been uh, an interesting year. Uh, it's, it's, like, it's like it's an, an admission. You go, you know what? I have, I got to admit, there have been some good films. Why well, do you feel like you need to apologize for saying some of the films have been good? Um, the film that I really, I really caught me by surprise because I knew a grand total of nothing about it was the Triangle of Sadness. I really, right, which that I was seen. cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and right. every time I thought I knew where that film was going, it went somewhere totally different, and I, I like that about it. Yeah. Mm. Well, but we're not talking we're about not talking the about Triangle of Sadness so or the Circle of Happiness. Just- Longtime listener will know is that I have a very fraught relationship with the Academy Awards, and I guess with any awards, because you know, as we've said ad nauseum, like how do you compare these films? How do you compare these genres? How do you compare anything? So I kind of wanted to focus on just one thing to dig into and compare, and that is the race for best actress because there are just some incredible performances this year mm-hmm. by these one two three four five five women no only five right which is compared to the best film category i'm like that's remarkably restrained for the academies these days only five nominees like it used to be that there would be five nominees or four five nominees six nominees for all of the categories now it's like 
it's almost like every child wins a prize. If you release the movie in, you know, 2022, you're going to get nominated. Well, we know the history nominees. of why that happened, which we don't necessarily have to get into unless you want to nutshell oh, I'll, I'll nutshell it. I'll, I'll tell you as quickly as I no, can. No, we do want to get into it. I want to know because I don't well, know. They expanded. There was a there was a sense that only a certain kind of film was being nominated, kind of the mm-hmm. Oscar bait mm-hmm. films and some high-profile blockbuster films were, by definition, getting left out. And Black Panther. Well, Black Panther was a picture nominee. It was really The Dark Knight. When The Dark Knight and Up, or it was not Up, it was Toy Story 3 and The Dark Knight were not nominees. Or it was one of it was one of the Pixar films. And and right. the so, Dark so Knight it was like sort of box office versus what people thought should be uh, and, you know. And also when they saw when a film that was a runaway hit like Titanic or Forrest Gump or um or uh, the the Lord of the Rings were Best Picture nominees. There mm. was a lot more interest in the Oscars because people saw the damn films. There was an <laughs> right. interest, in okay. and so, the commercial Forrest, reality. Yeah, um, and and again, w- without going too deep into it, it the Oscars used to have their own season. Like summer was time for fun. That was your blockbusters, and Christmas time was time for the Oscar bait. And it would be the films where everyone would be home for the holidays. Was there a movie we can all see? Oh, I heard everyone was talking about Blankety Blank. And so you saw films that were best pictured, that were that were clearly trying, they were releasing them around Christmas time mm-hmm. to get that Oscar buzz and be and to have uh to have that Oscar box office momentum. And that was a period of time where th- those were mainstream movies, you know, films. You know, big hit movies. You know, so, you know, Dances with Wolves was a mainstream oh, box yeah. office hit. Driving yeah, yeah. Miss Daisy was a mainstream. You know, the the single biggest box office hit of 1979 which, which, was Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, yeah, right, Robbie. Um, uh, uh, famously, Robin Williams described um, uh, uh, Driving Miss Daisy as the film that apparently directed itself. Right, <laughs> because he wasn't nominated. That's right. Even though it was nominated for best film, but anyway. now now all year long is the time for blockbuster films, mm. and the the Oscar the Oscar fight isn't the way it used to be, and so you're seeing more indie films and foreign films getting nominated, and so they're kind of making sure that with ten nominees, you are going to get a Top Gun and Avatar thrown in there, at least a couple of films that people have heard of, you know, and I think that that's. I do miss Oscar season. I do miss it. You know, some mm. of them were, sometimes it was shameless, but I do miss, you know, the films that are very clearly they're renting tuxes in their mind as they're making them. <laughs> well, in any case, and of course, you know, actors are drawn to roles that their agents are saying, yeah, this is going to be the one. This is one of the ones. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that some of these actresses could have imagined no. that this the their performances in these films could have gotten them this nomination. And and I'm Thinking one, in one, one, one in particular, really? yeah, one in particular. Well, yeah, well, actually, two because of the budget. But for example, so let's just go through the best actress nominations quickly. So you have Michelle Williams, who is in The Fablemans, and that is a forty million dollar film. Okay. The next, you have Kate Blanchett in Tar, title role of Tar, thirty five million. Um, and then you get down to some a little film called Everything. What is it? Everything, 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 everything everywhere, everywhere, all at once. Which is which is the most fitting description of, of of that film because that's exactly how it struck me, and I had to turn it off after about forty five minutes. I could not stand to watch it. Yeah. But Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which has gotten Michelle Yeoh her nomination. I don't know if at the time when she said yes to this $25 million film, if she could imagine that it would have been embraced the way it has been or it would have put her on this track or, or Jamie Lee Curtis, for that matter. You know, or Kay Quake Kwan. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, um, yeah particularly. <laughs> um, and then you've got um, Blonde starring Ana de Armas, and that's a $22 million film. And then we ro- roll on up to a little film called To Leslie, which has gotten Andrea Riseborough, who's one of my favorite actresses that you never heard of. And that film cost under $1 million. Yep. 
it's really kind of incredible and great. But if you look at all of these um, nominees, it's just so interesting because you have you have one person doing an impersonate. We have two people basically doing impersonations, right? You have Anadarmus doing an impersonation and a reimagining of someone we really know, right? Marilyn Monroe. She's going to have all these references to be compared we think we do. to. Right. We think we do, right? Her version, a deconstructive version of Marilyn Monroe. And then we have uh, Michelle Williams, who's playing, you know, Mama Spielberg, basically. And I didn't know this, but somebody was telling me today, another casting director um, was telling me today that um, Steven Spielberg's mom ran a restaurant yes. in Los Angeles. Yes. And so she actually was quite known to the community. <laughs> so there, there is a version of, of her that people might be comparing to, right? Um, and then we have then, you know, something completely original with Michelle Yeoh's character, the sort of housewife, you know, down on her luck entrepreneur in everything, everywhere, all at once. And then you have, of course, Andrea Rosberg playing a, a down and out, you know, alcohol addled um, absentee mom, basically, yeah. into Leslie. So, I mean, these are very different worlds. They're, they're very different scripts. And, and you could, one could argue, oh, no, sorry, I skipped uh, Kate Blanchett and Tar, who she's not playing a real person, but her persona is certainly based on real biographies of real oh, uh, yeah. female, female conductors and also yes. other conductors. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I did read a, um, uh, an interview <clears throat> recently with the, with the Sydney-based um, uh, director of, um, I, I can't remember the exact organisation that she's um, currently the chief conductor for, but it's that was what that's that's who it was based on. So it was based on a real um, Australian woman, right. as I understand it. But she can also, you know, there's there's just so many um, references that she could um, look at. And I was going to say is that when I first uh, one of my first jobs in New York was working for Maisel's Films, uh, which is a is a very uh, well known documentary film house, and one of their big um, documentaries is something called Ozawa, which is about the Japanese master conductor. C.G. Ozawa. Yeah, exactly. So um, and so there's there's a lot of references for her to watch and model. Certainly she had to. And, and anyway, so so today I want to talk about these extraordinary performances um, between all of us. We've seen them all. Yes. So uh, I've seen them all. But I'd love to get your opinions on the ones that you have seen. But I also want to talk about just this this um the physical transformation so for me if there's going to be any kind of criteria which is impossible about a best performance then for my money as a former actor and as a casting director it's in transformation you know are these actresses transforming from something that i knew i thought i knew who they were before and now in this performance have they completely transformed into something that is completely surprising and something i've never seen them do before or maybe ever seen anybody do before so that was kind of the challenge i gave to myself and when you're talking about transformation of course you're talking about costumes and makeup and wigs and possibly prosthetics and gaining a bunch of weight, losing a bunch of weight. But I, it occurred to me that I'm so fascinated by gesture and how an actor uses the hmm. vocabulary of their body, of their hands, of their shoulders, of how they, they walk and how they just wave hello to someone that can imbue so much in um and gesture in in my training you break down gesture and this is from um for you nerds out there is through ann bogart's viewpoints which is based on mary overly's viewpoints which is from the modern dance world anyway you break down gesture in terms of communicating gesture right i'm waving at dean my gesture is replacing a word if i'm flipping him off that's replacing a word you know or or, or whatever. Not that I would ever do that. So a communicating gesture where what oh. you're doing is replacing a word. Um, but then there are all kinds of other behavioral gestures, right? Putting my hair behind my ears, um, scratching my head, you know, that are kind of almost psychological gestures that tell you about the character. And then there are cultural gestures, right? If I went, 
to you, which I, you know, just kind of clipped my thumb thumb in my tooth. Um, that that could be a cultural gesture of of a stereotypical Italian saying, "Oh, you know, gumbazza, bafangu, You know, uh, you know, some sort of something from my culture or from a culture. Uh, and then there are just abstract gestures, like if if something were to happen right now, like if Paul just spontaneously combusted, I might go <gasps> like that. I hope right? so. I hope um, so. <laughs> with my hands. So that whole vocabulary of categorization of gestures um, is alive and well in all of these performances. And I just love kind of breaking them down and just seeing um, how they're used. Um, comments? It's interesting. Like, I, I, you know, the the performance that I've seen, like, I, I don't really have a criteria of who I would nominate because I think a lot of times, it's which performance served the function of the film the best. But then again, there have been times like one year I felt Kate Blanchett should have won the Oscar. She's already won two. So I have what I call the Coen brothers rule that if they've or someone's already won multiple yeah. Oscars, I yeah. can't be mad if they don't win another, you know, mm -hmm. but um, I felt Kate Blanchett should have won the Oscar for the film Elizabeth because her performance raised the bar of that film. I thought it was only a me I thought it was a mediocre movie, mm -hmm. but it felt like a great movie because of her performance. So sometimes that element in it, but there have been other times it's like I feel Michelle Williams gave a performance that could have been a caricature um of the sort of the arty sort of psychologically trapped woman of the post-war suburbia. Uh, in, and, the in the Fablemans, where it wasn't a caricature, it wasn't a cartoon. Mm -hmm. It was it was nuanced, and there were points where you could have. She was flawed, and she was sometimes selfish, and she was sometimes. But but you you were able to. She was able to find the humanity in that, and the same goes for Andrea Riceboro in To Leslie, which their her character could have been a villain. Her character could have been the exact mm. person that we all say, what an a-hole. If you watch an episode of, you know, uh, you know, some, you know, daytime TV show, uh, you won the lottery. And now you abandon your kid and you don't get, you know, and instead she found, you know, the found the elements of that character that you can, I don't necessarily say sympathize with, but empathize with. And I think having that is be able to do that in that type of material is wonderful. And and finally, what I loved about Michelle Yeoh's performance, which of the nominees is the one I would personally lean towards, mm -hmm. is that there was, she was playing one character, but there were several versions of that character within the movie. Mm -hmm. And sometimes mm -hmm. the changes were not necessarily transformative of wearing a different dress or wearing a different makeup, but like, her attitude, the way that she holds her body, the way that she looks, the way even her voice sounds. The same thing with Kei Hui Kwan in the film, who could go from super confident to mousy because mm -hmm. he's the same yeah. character, but they're different versions of them. And I think that that's a challenge to be able to pull that off in a in a completely bananas film where you where you find the realism of that is very much like being John Malkovich that you find the realism from within the craziness and play it as if the reality is real. Let us appreciate the craziness and to see the different nuances of her performance. I think she was remarkable. And that's why of the, of the nominee, the three nominees that I've seen so far, she would be the one that I personally would be leaning towards. Hmm. So uh, this uh, finding the craziness and the reality, so it's real life you're saying, Paul. Oh, it's it's eerily similar to real life. <laughs> yeah, I um, I struggled as I've already mentioned to watch um everything everywhere all at once. I found the first thirty minutes completely teeth gratingly annoying. His 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 uh his the way that they audio treated his voice and and just everything about it was just off off putting now i'm normally up for that stuff it's like i don't need a straight you know a to z film right i'm i'm take me anywhere but i just found it really annoying and after she started to after she met Jamie Lee and she's done the thing and they go into the broom closet or whatever it just it just lost me i was like i don't need to give 3 hours of my life to this i just couldn't 
I couldn't swallow it. I just couldn't do it, um, which is which is odd because I know how many awards it's won and 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 I could and I wanted to like it. I went into it going, I'm going to love this. It's, it's so me, but it wasn't me. And yet you get a film like Blonde, which has been scorn has been poured on this film, like and for reasons that I completely understand. Yet to me, it was absolutely captivating. Absolutely captivating. Yeah. And you talk about a performance where, um, where you know, so, so, somebody transforms and she has been criticised for her accent and for this, that and the other. And to your point, Paul, also about, <clears throat> or, or Lisa, sorry, about, about a gesture and this, that and the other. I think that she did an amazing job of not just being physically there, but she would she would find little touches that would just make you go, oh, yeah, that's like that. So um, th th that's like that, you know, that that real life thing that she did. And I know that the director Andrew Dominic, who um, is has has been, <laughs> what is the opposite of prolific? Andrew Dominic is the opposite of prolific. He did Chopper and got famous for that, and then he directed. I don't even know what he did. He did the Jesse James and the coward yeah. Robert Ford. He did two episodes of Manhunter, and he's done fuck all since then. It's like, what are you doing, man? Get out he was there like and Terrence work. Malick. He was like Terrence yeah. Malick. Well, or yeah, Todd yeah. Field. Todd Field has had wow. His 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 movies have been few and far between, but wow, what what um, incredible landscapes does he mm. do? And and I, you know, I wow, you know, I think you and I both, Dean, really appreciated Anna de Armas's performance as being, you know, the most acting of anybody. Um, and you know, she kind of weaponized her tears as bullets. I mean, they, she was, they were just so powerful. I mean, she was just so completely uh, emotionally traumatized that I think we both were worried about mm. her. Um, oh yeah. But the thing, some, sometimes when, a, when an actor is emoting so much, weirdly, I can't emote. It's almost like when an actor is holding back their emotions and is not able to cry, but is is going through some kind of trauma mm. that I actually feel the most and mm. cry for them. That's um, a that's a really that's a really good point. And you know, you just reminded me of a scene that um, uh, I was reminded of today when I was looking at some research for this particular episode. And it's um, uh, talking of Academy Awards and nominees and winners and not winners and blah blah blah, is the the incredible scene between Michelle Williams and um, Casey Affleck in Manchester by the Sea, where he bumps into her and she's got the pram and and you know he's wounded, she's wounded, she's trying to find a way. I mean, I'm I'm not going to go and describe the whole scene, but it, it's but it's exactly what you just said. It, it was in the restraint of the uh, of that scene. Um, particularly his reaction that is just so powerful and it and it just breaks your heart sometimes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and I would say as far as um let's talk about Kate Blanchett for a second, which I don't think either of you have seen this film, correct? No. Okay. I saw correct. Avatar, but I haven't seen Tari. <laughs> It's shockingly similar. Yeah. Shockingly similar. So she plays in three, three, three of my friends, three of my friends have worked on worked on Avatar. Like were really like seriously on the crew, and I still haven't seen it. It's. I, it's, I, I it's still. Brutal. I don't know who Kate Winslet was. She's my favorite actress. I don't know who she was in the film. It wasn't in Tar, but no, she was the blue one. Tar. Okay. Anyway, so Kate Blanchett. So this is so something I've been thinking about because I was very just unsettled by Kate Blanchett's performance. Now, you know, she's playing this highest echelon of an artist, a conductor who breathes just rarefied air. It's not a world that many of us will ever understand or see or can completely, even except for you, Paul, I know. Um, it's, it's kind of, you know, it, 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 it just reminded me of the art world, you know, being one of those, this is the highest echelon of artists that's, you know, whatever. Um, but but she has played these sort of erudite upper crust characters many times. I mean, you just mentioned Elizabeth and then there's Carol. So, you know, I, I'm seeing some of that, you know, I, some of that is kind of echoing in her performance a bit. But then she just takes it to 11 to quote uh, Spinal Tap. I mean, she takes it to such an interesting dark level and then of course you know she's uh, and Todd Field is creating this vehicle for her to inhabit that is just 
so full of paranoia and is she dreaming? Isn't she dreaming? Is, is she sane? Is she crazy? You know, are there ghosts? Are there not? I mean, it's, it's, it's a really interesting performance, but I don't necessarily feel anything for her because her character doesn't really have feelings. Her character Mm. is not, you know, very empathetic. So it's almost like the opposite side of the spectrum from what Anadarmus is doing in Mm. blind. It's kind of interesting. Um, but gosh, you know, you can't, she, her command of her voice and her body and when, you know, they don't show her conducting until like almost an hour into the film. And by the way, I want to say about Tar, and I think I mentioned this to you, Dean, the beginning of Tar is about 10 minutes of just the credits. And when I'm sitting there minute after minute of watching just names of all of the every single person who worked on this film, I'm like, Todd Field, you are a motherfucking badass. I've got to meet you. I mean, what kind of balls does it take to start a film that costs, you know, $35 million and everybody's agent and everybody's PR person is like, start the film, start the film. And nope, nope. It's going to be page after page of every Austrian flute player who was in the symphony, every, you know, dolly puller. What, what are the other things that are in the credits? I don't know. Dolly Best boys and, yeah, gaffers. And, 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 yeah. and I love that because he's saying this is what matters to me. These people help mm. me do this film. You're going to see their names first before you see the money shot of yep. you. Blanchett. Yeah. So and 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 of course it's it's a stunning it's a stunning film and and we could talk a long time about the narrative and the story structure and all that stuff and how um how it's edited. Woo. But what I will say is when you finally do see Kate Blanchett you don't see her conducting until almost an hour into the movie when there's finally this and I saw it in a music hall when I when I saw the film. So she comes on the stage and you can't see what I'm doing, but she like does this big flourish with her arms and her chest and is like, like she bursts through the screen and the horns just go, boom. It's like, what, who's that Zimmer guy that has all the Hans Zimmer. Yeah. It's like, Hans Zimmer. yeah, it's like a Hans Zimmer. Yeah. Just like inception just opens up, you know? So, but it's, it's kind of fantastic, but you know, you, de- I definitely did not, feel for her because she just sucks i mean this character just you know really <laughs> not kate blanchett, not kate blanchett not but kate i mean blanchett. we know this i mean yeah. we know that this is one of these temperamental genius maestros that get away with murder and yet suffer for their art and there's just like you know anyway very complicated but um any hoodle um so um not, uh, not having seen it lisa is it a flip of is it a gender flip where, where you know, usually that's sort of a domineering, um, really um, uh, powerful conductor would be a male? Is it a gender flip in, in that respect or for effect or what do you think? Um, well, I think we are sort of comparing in our minds um, other people who have abused their power and their station. But it's so funny because when I saw the film right afterwards, she was, Kate Blanchett was there with Todd Field and they were sitting on the on the stage and then they were interviewed by Gustavo Dudamel, who is the maestro here in Los Angeles, who is just a big puppy dog. I mean, he couldn't be less, I mean, that's why I think the city loves him so much um, is that he just is so, his hair is all over the place and he's just, you just want to hug him and, and pinch his cheeks and, and make him a pierogi or something. I mean, he's just so lovely. Um, he's not, he doesn't have a, a very smiley and warm. Um, he doesn't have that icy, austere, gratified right. air, you know, so it mm. is kind of interesting. But it's definitely a, 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 well, I mean, I don't know if it's a gender flip or not. It's about a power dynamic. And you you see this in academia, certainly, when you have a lot of young people vying for the attention of a professor. And the professor is striding around, you know, and mm. being the authority on everything. So, um, but it is, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's definitely an interesting uh, portrayal. But, as, uh, as somebody who knows nothing about classical music mm-hmm. uh, and orchestra, I still, to this day, struggle to see what 
a conductor does. I honestly do. It's like, yes, well, if, if you're playing the music, yes, do I really need someone pointing at me to go hit that note? Yes. Like, yes. Well, well, if you I've watch this movie, in front of me, I've got the notes. I don't well, she get it. Answers that question. Oh, I'm going to watch it. When you finally get to the start of the movie, she says one of the first things that she's asked. She asked that she's asked kind of that question. You know, what what does a mm-hmm. conductor do? And she's she's I start time. Time does right. not start without me. I start time. So um, it is interesting. I mean, not knowing. I know I don't know anything about music either. But well, it's also they act like the director. You know, I mean, it's like everyone's hitting. Yeah, the, everyone's okay, hitting it, But you, yeah. have, you have like a a director's job is to take at least on a film set is to take all the different uh, creative people, whether they're artists, whether they're actors, whether they're you know designers, photographer, all these different elements, and make sure everything is working in the same direction mm. as service of the story. You have all these different musicians. Now, someone may be ready to play, and someone may go, you may be able to, 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 you know, not maybe not everyone's playing it the same way, but also there's emphasis on, I want to emphasize this over this. Yes, it's all written out. You could say the same thing about a movie director. It's on the page. What are we yeah, doing? Yeah, yeah. So just say way those, way hit the marks and say the lines. Mm. Well, and also what they show in, this, in, the, in the movie is that, most of her job happens before she starts conducting. I mean, she's, she's, you know, she's directing it all in rehearsal and is telling people what they're going to do when the, you know, and how mm. quickly to come in, how loudly, what, what the emotional tenor is of each part of the music. So that's all done. And then she gets up there and conducts it, but they already know the way that mm, she wants I've been through to it. play. Which, so. is, which is similar to, you know, your job, Lisa, uh, you know, when, when you have actors that need to be rehearsed and then they need to deliver when, the, when okay, and we have speed and we're rolling and okay, go, but they've already done it before. And it's the same. I'm, I'm, I'm only a corporate event producer, but uh, it's the same thing. It's like, I've already built the show in my head months out from before the show i know exactly when it's going to happen what's going to happen and and so the it's it's almost boring to get to the point of the delivery of the show mm. or, or in this right. case it, it not not boring but it's like yeah i've already sweated over that stuff for months right and the same thing, i guess with film I'm, I'm not no experience in film but it sounds the same and I guess the other um, bar for best, if there is going to be one, is what kind of cognitive load did all of these actresses have to mm. take on? I mean, Kate Kate Blanchett, I almost said Kate Winslet. No, Kate Blanchett. She had to learn German. She had to learn how to conduct. She had to learn the piano. I mean, she had a lot that she had to just become proficient at before you even start acting, mm. you know? Mm. So that's something to know, to, to note. Um, and it, it's not, I, I don't think the cognitive load was that intense for anybody else that I can really, I mean, Michelle, Michelle Yeoh certainly already knew um, martial arts and she deploys that in, um, you know, in the film. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's on record as being pretty, pretty good in that uh, field and already. And Riseborough is British and she definitely had to learn a West Texan accent and you know, does she pull it off to an American? Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. For sure. And she's somebody who I've just loved in Black Mirror. And I mean, she just pops up in anything and she makes whatever she's in better and without drawing attention. And you're always going to look at her and go, who is that? You know, she's got a real chameleon aspect to her. And she can just she just plays every kind of genre, every time 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 period, every kind of every kind of person. So she does achieve that strung out. Um, what I mean, I don't know if it's particular to West Texas, but she has that strung out vibe of somebody who's you know ridden. I think they even call her this ridden hard, ridden hard, put away wet yeah. kind of a vibe. Um, that a lot of actresses can do that. A lot of actresses love to do that. That kind of um mother who's who's just given everything up for her for the drug ab- habit. You know, I think mm-hmm. also what she, her best thing that I think she did with her performance was really. She laid everything out there and not trying to be a caricature, but at the same time, not trying to hit some of the obvious heartstring moments. I mean, she plays her character with there's, as I said, it would take only a slight change of the perspective of the film to turn her into a villain. 
to turn her mm-hmm. into a, yeah, a, a plenty of people she is a villain in the in the film because yeah. she wins this lottery ticket and she kind of blows it on booze and drugs and and giving it away to stupid for stupid things and to lots of people who want the money from her and, and taking advantage of her and that that she completely alienates her son and even at the beginning of the film when the son tries to do the right thing for his mom she basically betrays him like basically goes right back to her old ways and when the son was laying himself out for her and there was a lot of people who say well then f this person look at her she's a she's a mess and who gives a crap um and sometimes those people where you say you know, those characters where you could say who gives a crap and finding the reasons to give a crap about them i think uh to me for that particular performance was uh She's laying it all out on the line as an actress, I thought, did a yeah, fine job. Yeah, I mean, she's completely bare of any makeup or glamour or yeah. anything like that. She's she's very, very raw. Um, she's bone thin in it, um, you know, junkie thin. Um, and she's not, but what's kind of extraordinary about her, Paul, is that she's almost ageless. There are some scenes when she looks painfully young, like, like she could almost be a teenage mom. And then other times she looks as haggard, like a, you know, real, like a 45 year old who, you know, has (laughs) just smoked every single cigarette down to its filter. And she kind of has that chameleon quality and, and, um, you are always, very edgy about her. Like, what is she going to do next? Is she going to fall off the wagon? Is she going to, you know, screw this person? You know, what's, you know, is she going to go too far? So that is a, that's a really wonderful edge to be playing. So speaking of her, what's the, I've seen tangentially, but don't understand. What is the saga or the, the thing about her Oscar, um, you know, kind of nomination and, and campaign. There's something about, her campaign what's that about well it depends on who you ask um so people took issue with the fact that this film which we've already said was a one million dollar film and like it's clear to me even though it was cast by the wonderful arlie day casting director but it's clear that it's a lot of friends coming together to do this film and the the film is directed i believe his name is michael morris but more importantly he's married to a very well-known actress um who um mary mcdonald who um who helped him um with this campaign because she knows because she's got very high powered agents and managers. So basically after the film was done, she helped get it into the hands of Gwyneth Paltrow and Jennifer Aniston who had viewing parties for their friends and really mounted this grassroots campaign because there was no real studio behind it. I mean, the the film made like $38,000, Right. It's a one million dollar film and, and, you know, hardly anybody saw it. I don't even know where it where it really played. So for this little teeny tiny film, you know, to to have so many A-listers batting for it and, and you know, submitting the nomination because you have to nominate the nominations. So mm. to have so many people from the Academy championing it um, in the face of, you know, Viola Davis, you know, the woman king. Is that what it's called? Yeah. The woman yeah. king. And, and other other and, and then the actress who I, I'm blanking on her name, who was the mother until, you know, um, yeah. having those. Mm ladies those very talented actresses you know that maybe they're not friends with jennifer aniston or goop or you know whatever gwyneth paltrow and but 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 isn't that i mean you could argue you could take the opposite tack and say well this is a grassroots campaign for a good Mm -hmm. reason right if the movie's good enough right if it's good enough to be nominated but i just never got the initial screen sorry the um the the, uh, release uh, in cinemas that 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 it should have got considering how good it is. And we know, we all discover films that you just go, how the fuck was this not a smash? Like, how was everyone not seen this? Right. And so I haven't seen the film, but it, it and almost, and also I think, again, playing devil's advocate, it's like, hang on, so somebody played the game of promoting better than you? At, well, that's, you know, well, that's the other side time. of it. It's like, well, I mean, you know, when, it's a business. And we've talked about Harvey Weinstein quite a bit on this <laughs> program, and he is famous for doing the exact same thing, except he had billions or millions of dollars behind him where he would throw private screening parties and make, you know, people go to them and mm. and track down Academy members and say, why didn't you go to this screening? Here, 
you know, I mean, be very bullying in his tactics to get people to watch the performances and to 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 nominate his films. So it was kind of a what what are we talking about here? You know, mm. you know. But then again, in if you if you don't happen to be friends with Jennifer Aniston and all you know high profile people, would the rank and file on their own the 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 Academy membership have honored this? I mean, she wasn't nominated for any other major right. awards. You know. Yeah. Okay, so, but it is the movie business, right? And the emphasis yeah. is on business. And so if, if you don't make business, then you can't make movies, right? And if you I'm make on, movies that don't make money, you're not going to get more money to make more movies. And I'm, uh, as someone who was a huge fan of low-budget indie films of the 80s and 90s. And, Repo And I, yeah, Repo Man and all this great film. Like, I just... I want anyone to champion this type of movie. Like I was so happy that Coda won Best Picture last mm -hmm. year because yeah. that was exactly the kind of film that I would see at the Angelica Film Center or at Cinema Village or all these places when I was in New York. And a lot of times it would be a film that needs to be discovered, needs to have the the festival critics behind it. And you know, it's a dying breed because most of the people were the reasons that you know. A lot of people used to fantasize about being the next Coen Brothers or Steven Soderbergh or Spike Lee or Amy Heckerling or whomever are now wanting to be the next Vince Gilligan or they're to create mm. their own. They're 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 <laughs> aiming more towards to have a streaming show rather than the thing that I miss, which is here's a film you're going to go see a film, and for the next hour and a half to two hours you're in this world. It's not about sequels. It's not about franchises. It's about Let's just live in this world for a couple hours, and at the end, it's over. But you, it's not like oh, I got to binge. No, we're not binging to Leslie. We're not binging Coda. Yeah, we're we're these people for this period of time, and that's becoming a lost art because the only feature films anyone seems to want to make are, you know, franchises, and mm. the people who used to make those are now trying to make TV shows or make streaming yeah. shows. And so yeah, yeah. I want I I I am. I am for anything that will promote this kind of film to continue being made because I I love these kind of films. Right. And as much as you hated everything everywhere at once, I'm very much a champion. Oh, no, no, I know. I, to be clear, I, I didn't hate it. I just couldn't like it. Mm -hmm. I just found yeah. it really hard to like. And I just, I could not persevere with it to the point where it was just, it was like grating on me. Mm -hmm. And I just went, I have to stop. All right, I'll, I'll, I thought I'll come back to it, but I don't. I don't know if I ever will. Well, there is a certain repetition to that film that it is. It's kind of in in a cycle. Um, you probably you probably get the whole idea in the first thirty minutes, but um, yeah. But you know, um, I I love that that movie exists. It kind of exists, you know, against the odds in some way. And um, you know, good on Sarah Finn for you know rediscovering Kay. Yeah. One and mm, you know yep. and, and and I it makes me a little bitter because you know he's he's getting these awards and it's wonderful and he but he's saying look this is the first time in twenty years that somebody has let me act and I'm like mm. why what where was Steven Spielberg all these years he couldn't have been in something there there was know? a wide open chance for a short round cameo in Crystal Skull it was sitting there mm. waiting for him to do yeah, it yeah good point. And or even a million other things that his production company does. Oh, what's a Betty Pop player one? What's a Betty pops up now in number five. Yeah, Paul. What? A, what's a bit? Like they cast him now. They're going to find a place for him in five, right? Well, right? no, but like there was. I mean, remember when I was watching Crystal Skull, and I and I abhor Crystal Skull. But <laughs> yeah, when Indy was was let go from the university, I was expecting like his TA to come in, and it was short round. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> And then at the end, at the end, there's a wedding between Indy and Marion. And I said, seriously, you couldn't say, okay, Dr. Jones, you know, hold on to your potato. You know, like whatever line he had from Temple of Doom. So you honestly couldn't have put him in that. Or as I said, thousands of parts in, you know, Ready Player One or freaking yeah. Clinton or anything. Shows that he's been the executive producer of. I mean, there is just, I don't know how there is an excuse how this wonderful actor didn't do more but anyway i'm glad that he's here and oh, well. he's certainly one thing you can say about the best actress nominations is that they are in an orbit of other great performances too i mean and how they're bouncing off which mm -hmm. i don't think 
people, you know, really give enough credit to that, you know, um, who was who was Baby Spielberg in? What was the, the actor's name in The Fablemans? I don't do that to oh, me because okay. I don't have. It <laughs> was, was wonderful. It was, it was wonderful. <clears throat> so he was in opposite Paul Dano, Dano, opposite Seth Rogen, you know, the opposite you know uh, Judd Hirsch. I mean, there's so many wonderful performances in that uh, in that particular film. And, um, and the, can, can, can I ask you, as somebody outside of America, do you need to be? American to get the uniquely Jewish aspect of the Fablemans, because well, as, as an Australian, yeah, yeah. I'm like I don't. I've seen the I've seen the the short, but it's like I've no connection to this. I I, I literally have no interest in watching it. Well, it may know, be a great film, but I'm just like I was. Yeah, I was, just I was just talking about this with the casting director today, who is who is Jewish, and she was, you know, you know, she was kvetching about the lack of authenticity <laughs> in a lot of of stories that are supposed to be about Jews that that are cast with um, what's what's a non Jew called? Goy, a goy with the goy and the girl, you know, the girl and the goys. But anyway, um, I think uh, you know, I don't know, Dean. There's, I don't think a lot of Americans unless you grew up in New York or in certain pockets um, would even understand some of the subtleties and the, or the other things about the Fablemans. But of course, right. if you love Spielberg, then mm. you do want to see this origin story. Um, and if you love the period, you know, but I think even if, for me, I, I really, I, you know, we've talked about all these performances. I'm going to save who I, I would give the Zammy to, and I think it's going to be Michelle Williams because she has completely transformed for me in everything I, you know, from what I know her of in the past. She is somebody who I felt for, even though her character could have been very villainous. I mean, she's a, a mom who leaves her family to go back and you for know, Seth Rogen for Seth Rogen. She leaves Paul down <laughs> for Seth Rogen, which is wow. That's anyway, no, I love but it. And she's a very flawed mom, but you can understand what's happening. She's having a complete mental breakdown and an emotional breakdown. And she's smiling a lot, but you can see the pain that she cannot cry and she cannot crack. And she does capture, I mean, I'm not Jewish, um, but she does capture people I know um, from New York and from, and from LA, you know, she, she captures that, Jewish nest to me that, you know, um, that, that the kind of mothering that, that I feel like I recognize in that family, but of right. course I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not. At hmm. all. Well, no, I think it's, well, it's interesting because I, I asked the question because in Australia, we don't have the Jewish, uh, subculture that is unique to, uh, New York, as I understand it, and it exists in LA and if you think about a, a Larry David or a, or a Jerry Seinfeld, there's nothing like that here because the only Jewish um, culture in Australia is, in Melbourne certainly, is the Hasidic, right? They're very visible because they're Hasidic, right? They've got the the the, the sort of um, oh, yeah. the clothes and the hair in a certain way of dressing and they live in a, in a specific area. But but we don't have an endemic um, culture of, of Judaism here in Australia, or if it is, to the extent that it exists, it's underground. So I look at a movie like that and I'm going, I don't know what the connection to this is for me, apart from it might be a good film. And, of course, Spielberg is a, there, there's an, element is, is an amazing I, filmmaker. There, there's an element of it that I really, that that drew to me that I related to was that my family moved several times when I was growing up. And it always was because of a new opportunity for my dad's career and so like i realized that there's a sense of when you move especially when you move when you're living in the east part of the united states and you move out west you suddenly like if when i was growing up in massachusetts you were identified by you're always identified from the previous migration where mm. i was irish italian in massachusetts but i was from massachusetts in california it's like you're you're and and so there you know Spielberg's family moved from Cincinnati to New Jersey to Phoenix to the San Francisco Bay Area. And the one thing I think it does capture well is that sense of okay, we're now somewhere totally different. Mm -hmm. Our home mm. is now a totally different home. And um and I remember like it was and we my family moved from 
Connecticut to Massachusetts to Switzerland, back to Massachusetts, over to California. And every place that I grew up, there was a sense of, all right, this is where we're living now. This is a totally different place. And I think what it really, for me, captured that sense of, all right, we're all a family, but now we're amongst cacti and we're now, this mm-hmm. is a very different world. And I think that okay. might be a very American aspect too. that sense of Westward Ho, mm-hmm. although Westward Ho doesn't involve as many covered wagons as it used to. But um, I think that, and again, I don't know um, the, how that would relate to uh, an audience in Australia. Uh, but I but think it does it, also cover a very particular period. It's a very kind of slim little period um, that I recognize. I mean, this, Mr. Spielberg is much older than I am, but I, I recognize some of my family in his family, you know, the way that the women right. kind of were treated and, and how they have to, you know, be responsible for certain things and and how the and and certainly the grandmothers mm-hmm. in this story i i really felt like i understood and that that implicit judgment of everything that's going on and um so um but there's mm. something about michelle williams you know she's so luminous and fragile but and but then also her gesture that i'm going to get back to gestures i've i mean the way that she used her hands and she'd cover her face with her fingers and she just the way that her body and then she does a lot of dancing and expressive movement in it that was you know that's that her son is capturing on um on his little video the camera moments. yeah Film, um, not video, film, not video. And I don't know. I just thought it was great. And she, and again, she's got this great scene partner in Paul Dano, who is, is just in love with her, but couldn't be farther from her charismatic match. You know, he's the science guy and she's the artist. She's the pianist. She's, you know, so she's got so much life and he's the straight man, you know, in, yeah. in the, anyway. Well, you've, so you've, you've, you've inspired me to check it out um, because yeah, that's that. That does sound interesting. That does sound nuanced and layered. And um, and to your point, Paul, about moving around. See, I've just as you were talking, I'm thinking. First of all, America and the U.S. If you overlay the maps, they're about the same size, right? So Australia yeah. Yeah. roughly the same size as the U.S. Continental U.S. Anyway, but you you guys are so regional. You can go from one state to another, and it's like a different country. Whereas here, you can go from Sydney, which is on the east coast, to Perth on the west coast. Takes you know, it's like a five and a half hour flight, and there's no change. <laughs> it's just, we're pretty generic, and so the idea, and you guys move around so much, like it's nothing for. You hear stories of people picking up as your family did, and they moved from the east coast to the west coast to the Midwest to the north to the Texas to go whatever. It's like. Most of the people that I know in Melbourne, uh, where, where, where I've grown up, you, you're born here, you, you travel, you go overseas and you travel, but you pretty much live where you're born. You know, you don't often pick up and go. And I think um, Americans are much more um, apt to go, you know what? Yeah. All right. We're leaving Michigan. We're going to go to California or vice well, versa or whatever. People I know who stayed in New England, I have many friends who stayed in New England and they're like, you know. In Massachusetts, oh, you're going to move to Connecticut? It's, it's, you might as well be moving to Mumbai. You know, it's sort of like it's so they get very provincial in in those areas. But I think California is a whole region based. I mean, the the population explosion of California was based upon people trying to find gold either in 1849 or people trying to find gold in the movies or the tech world, you know, mm. now. Mm. Um, I think if you're a fan of Spielberg films, this is to Steven Spielberg what the Christopher Nolan Batman Begins is to the Batman story. It's like Steven Spielberg's origin story. And there are some shots in the film that will suggest and sort of subtly, um, or sometimes not so subtly, remind you of some of his you know, films that he eventually made. But also, if you look at his movies, so many of the films have to do with divorce with mm. children with children dealing with divorce with the the you know he, he even shoved the uh the, the father son issues into an Indiana Jones movie into two of <laughs> into two Indiana Jones movies <laughs> you know and and you know use and the the element of the broken home is a huge part of ET the part of the father leaving the family 
is you know part of Close Encounters. You know, there's all these elements of uh, that you see throughout every film. Um, there's there, there's one point where they're all biking on their bikes, and I kept imagining them, you know, going over the moon like an ET. And at one point, <laughs> the kids looking out when it's pouring rain, and I kept expecting the T Rex eye to show up <laughs> in, into the window. But it, it but mm. and there's a scene in the closet that very much reminds me of several shots in ET. And I think they're they're they're. It's not overt. It's not like here's my friend Elliot, but you know, it's uh, it makes it for if you're a Spielberg fan, I think you'll enjoy it. Well, you've you've inspired me to check this out because I am, I have a weird relationship with um, <laughs> relationship. That's too strong a word, but I have a weird sort of sensibility with Spielberg, where uh, really almost nothing that he does connects with me. Mm. Like I'm, I'm, I respect him. He's clearly one of the world's greatest directors ever. Right, but if you said list your top Spielberg films, I'd probably start with Jewel and Jaws, and then struggle to get anything after that. <laughs> Almost. Oh, uh, I beg your pardon. Um, what was what was the name of the World War Two drama? Ryan. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, Nineteen forty-one. No, no um, the the story of uh, Ra- Raoul uh, Yellenberg, whatever his name was. Oh, the- Schindler's, Schindler's List. List. Schindler's List. Schindler's List. Stunning, absolutely stunning. You nailed that. But yeah, but his other stuff is like the the, the stuff that he's most famous for, like Encounters. I'm like, whatever. Um, Raiders is Raiders is a fun park. It's great. I love it. All that stuff. But yeah, um, but he doesn't. I I don't have a visceral connection to him. But I acknowledge how good he is. He's very very good. So uh, anyway, I will check out. I will check that out now. All right, hang on. Before we wrap up, let's have our predictions. Who is going to win? Who should win? Best actress. I I think Michelle Williams is going to win, and I think Michelle Yeoh should win. Mm, It was interesting. I um, uh, uh, reading some stuff today. I saw that. Yeah, about a week ago, uh, Variety wrote a piece saying that the last time an actor won a, the BAFTA, the SAG, um, what else was it? It was the it was it was the four. It was the was BAFTA, the SAG, the Golden Globes, and, and and something else, and then did not win the best Oscar. The only actor that's ever happened to. Glenn Close. No. Oh, okay. No, it was was um, uh, Kate's. Well, I was going to say Kate's countryman, but he's not because he's a Kiwi. But it was Russell Crowe who won all four for um, for Beautiful uh, for Beautiful Mind. And then, of course, in between that, he had that infamous phone throwing incident where he piffed a mobile phone at somebody, and then maybe that's what, you know, knocked him out of it. I don't well, know. Well, but that's he... why it's so hard to pro- prognosticate because I don't remember when the voting was closed. And so sometimes there's a swell that starts to happen, but the voting was already closed for the, yes. the Academy Award, so I'm not sure. Um, right. I don't, I, it feels like it's going to go to Michelle Yeoh, and that would be such a fantastic thing. But who well, knows? Kate, Kate, Kate won three of those four, but but she missed out on the SAG to Michelle. So it's like if Michelle, the Variety article was saying, if Michelle loses the SAG, that'd be four to Kate and zero to her. There's no way she can win. That's what they were saying. Well, anyway, anyway the, the we will have to watch and see. Wins the Zammy for me is going to be Michelle Williams, but these are all extraordinary <laughs> actresses. And I just want to shout out because they never get shouted out. The casting directors who put them in these films, hello, even if they were offer only, even if they, even if like, you know, in, in the case of Tar, I think Todd Field already knew that he wrote this for Kate Blanchett. It doesn't matter because her career is built on the shoulders of casting directors who, who believed in her. So I just want to shout out Cindy Tolan, who cast The Fablemans, Sarah Finn, who cast Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, A.B. Kaufman, Jeremy Zimmerman, who did Tar, Victoria Thomas, who did Blonde, and Arlie Day, who did Two Leslie. Congratulations, all of you. Well, well done. Good job. Well, thank you both for joining me on this annual event of an award show that I don't care about. But anyway, um, thank you for joining me. And until next time, this is Killer Castings signing off. 
Killer Casting is a concept created by her, Lisa Zambetti. It is produced by me, Dean Laffin. Logo art by my beautiful wife, April Laffin. Audio editing by him, Sean at choicevoiceproductions.com. And our theme music, We Are Beautiful, comes from them. That would be Hollywood Legends, Amphibious Zoo Music. Until next time, Killer Casting, out.